Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we're working our way through the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts. We're going to Acts chapter 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed around the room. And in our Bibles, we're going to page 917. 917. If you don't own a Bible, um, go ahead and take that one. <laughs> we would love for that to be our gift to you. Uh, to let you continue to read and study the Word of God over the course of the week. All right, so while you're flipping over there, um, this morning we're going to be looking at um, the conversion of Saul, who's going to become the Apostle Paul. Uh, even if you've never been around church, you've probably heard about the Apostle Paul. He is, um, if you were to make a short list of names of people um, that everyone recognizes as being influential, powerful, like world changers, you know? Like we wear those t-shirts, world changers, and we build a house. People that actually change the world, you know what I'm saying? Um, and and it, it, he would be on the short list, right? He, he would probably be in the top five. This is a guy that, that some scholars would argue um, that the text we're going to read today, the event that we're going to read about today, rivals the resurrection of Jesus for importance as far as as the impact right because Paul is going to become this monumental force for carrying the gospel into the world now I disagree with those scholars um, I don't place anywhere near the level of importance on Saul's conversion that they do but I will say that Saul becomes um, just an incredibly important figure in God's plan God has great plans um, and works them out greatly through him. And, um, and so, Saul, over the last couple of chapters that we've been reading through Acts, we've kind of been prepared for this. Luke's been introducing us to him slowly at, uh, in chapter 7. When um, Stephen was martyred, we are introduced to Saul for the first time, and, and he is the one that is guarding the cloaks of all things. So he's standing there as, as people are, are getting warmed up and ready to throw their stones and taking off their cloaks, he becomes the cloak guy, right? He's the one over there watching the cloaks, making sure nobody's pilfering the valuables out of them. Um, but it's basically him standing there in approval, right? It's him basically um, being present as a religious leader and as a, a young influential man, um, basically giving his approval to this action. Immediately after that, um, in chapter 8, we read about Saul... Um, moving from that, like like when he was at the stoning of Stephen, man, something lit up in him, and uh, he went from there and just lit up on a on a rampage, right? Literally, it says he ravaged the church, right? So he was going from house to house, dragging believers out of their homes, um, and and bringing them into the Jewish courts uh, because he saw them as a threat to Judaism as a threat to the Torah, the law, to, to their culture, to their faith. And so he became incredibly zealous in that. Had he stayed an enemy of the gospel, ironically, I think he would have been simply a footnote in history. I think he would have just been one more name among many names of people who had stood against the, the onward movement of God through the church but in our chapter today, we see that God had other plans, right? That this hater of the church, this self-righteous religious zealot, had a divine appointment with God. And it was an appointment that God made, not, not Saul. So he ends up being confronted by a blinding light, and in his blindness, he will come to truly see. Um, now, as we open this and get into this, these are one of those passages, as, as a preacher, you're a little bit intimidated when you come to a passage like this, because it is like one of those um, just really well-known passages, incredibly pivotal points. Uh, there's a lot of weight on it, you know, it's like, you're, man, you better, you know, back of your head, you're like, man, you better bring your A game, because this is like, like blinding lights and Jesus showing up, and, 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 and how in the world are we going to, well, here's the thing, the more I dug into this, um, as dramatic as this is, and it is dramatic, and, and as crazy as it seems, the reality is this is how God works. The more I sat in it, the more I saw, in fact, how normal this is. This is how God works. Now, it doesn't always manifest in the same way, um, but there is something for us here. Even though um, 
we're not Saul and we're not on the road to Damascus. When we understand the true nature of faith, we see that there really isn't anything that unique about Saul. In fact, for all of its craziness, it's exactly how God works with us today. So we're going to look at our text, and we're going to, we have a long story this morning, so we're going to take it in chunks. I'll read a section, and we're going to unpack it as we move our way through. So keep your Bibles open, and uh, we're going to work our way through. Okay, so let's take a look at verses 1 through 9 to begin with. Okay, Acts 9, 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, um, which, by the way, is just what they called the church at that point, right? You think Trailhead's a weird name. Um, I mean, seriously, they sound really cultic at this point, right? They're just belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And the men that were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. All right, so our passage opens with, with Saul uh, leaving Jerusalem and going to Damascus, right? Because the persecution had become so intense in Jerusalem that the, the disciples started spreading, right? We looked at that last week when we looked at Philip going out and, and, and encountering Simon the magician and, and the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, right? So, so he's like, man, there's, there's a whole new congregation of these people gathering over in Damascus. I need to go there. Right? It's not good enough for me to, to, to do this thing in Jerusalem. I need to go where they are. And so he gets permission from the high priest, and, uh, and it says he is breathing threats, <laughs> right? It is, it's on his breath, man. Uh, it's like he's drunk with it. You know what I'm saying? Like he is just drunk with his zeal. He is drunk with his, his, his ardent desire to destroy this thing. It is his motivation. It is his identity, right? In many ways, you can read into that. You understand that, 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 that he is identifying himself by his zeal, right? He is lit up, and, and he is lit up by the fact that he is lit up. He has a zeal that other people don't have, right? He's like, God is, the God of Israel is the only true God. And these weird Jewish people saying Jesus is the Messiah, they're misrepresenting my God. They're threatening my Torah. They're, they're, they're undermining the worship at the temple, and I'm the one who needs to set them straight. So he marches off to be the hero. At this point in time, man, he is so full of himself. Right? He is so convinced he is right. Right? You ever felt that sense of indignant, righteous anger? You ever felt that? Where you're like, man, I am right and they are wrong. And in that moment, you feel like, man, you, you ha if you had the power, you would call down fire from heaven right? Just to consume them and destroy them, and you wouldn't feel one lick of guilt about it, because you are right and they are wrong. And he is just in that place where he's like, these guys are an abomination, right? He is headstrong. He is confident. He has the path to his life all figured out, because he knows what's what, right? He's the guy that's going to show up and get it done. He's the one that's going to take this mountain. He's the one that's going to fight this battle. He's the one marching off, and then God showed up. I love this because when you read through this passage, there's absolutely no doubt that God's in control, right? I mean, his question is, why are you persecuting me? But you really get the feeling that he's not exactly helpless in the situation, right? I mean, he shows up in a blinding light, knocks him flat on the ground, and he's like, dude, why are you persecuting me? Dude, well, who are you? I'm Jesus, man. Now get up, go to the city. I'll tell you what to do later. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's just this commanding presence. Like, okay, that's enough of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you, you had your day. It's time for me to have mine. God breaks in. Saul's walking along. Bam. God just shows up, man. And Saul's on the ground, helpless. He was drunk on self-confidence and self-glory. And he just got sobered up. 
You know that moment when, when you're full of your self-righteousness and then something just blindsides you? And you're in that moment of just like soberness where it's like, whoa, I wasn't seeing clearly. I, 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 I thought I had everything so straight. I thought I had everything so clear. And you realize in that moment you don't, right? So super dramatic, right? This is a super crazy story. He's walking along. God shows up, voices from heaven, people all scared. He's blinded. But here's the thing. This is the way God actually and normally works, right? Because God, essentially what's going on here is God is calling Paul to faith, right? He's showing up. He's saying, now's the time. And he does that by confronting him with truth. Right? So for all the bright lights, for all the voices from heaven, what's really going on is, is God's breaking into Paul's darkness with light. He's breaking into his self-deception with truth. And he's saying, all right, now it's time for me to confront you with some things that you're looking at but you don't see. It's time to me, for me to confront you with some stuff that, that is true, even though you don't necessarily want to believe it. And he confronts him with two fundamental truths right? The first is that Jesus is actually risen from the dead, right? This is Jesus standing in front of him. Uh, all these guys who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, all right, here he is, right? Here is Jesus actually risen from the dead, manifesting himself. When he says, who are you, Lord? That's a, that's a statement of respect. It's a statement of, it's him recognizing that he's in the presence of someone much greater than himself. He's confused, he doesn't have clarity, but Jesus gives it to him. <laughs> I am Jesus. All right, this is one of the most profound conversions in the history of the church. There are several of them, right, that, 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 that are difficult for skeptics to explain, like James, the brother of Jesus, who thought Jesus was crazy, watched Jesus through his entire earthly ministry, watched him get crucified, didn't become a believer until, until after that, right? Uh, Saul's one of those, man. We have to figure out a way to explain this sudden and radical conversion from, from this guy who is, in a sense, a rising superstar in Phariseeism, rising superstar in his culture and in his religious world, to on a dime suddenly turn. It's right here. He was confronted with this truth, this Jesus who, who, who you despised, this Jesus that you thought the disciples were lying about, is in fact raised from the dead. And the second thing that he gets confronted with is that Jesus so fully identifies with his followers that when Paul persecutes the church, he's actually persecuting Jesus. You think you're just getting after all these crazy people. You think you're just dragging these people off because they're misrepresenting God. You're actually persecuting me. So there's a second truth here that's revealed, and that is that these people are, in fact, the people of God. For all of your religious heritage, for all of your ethnic pride, for all of your Jewish training, you are not the covenant people of God just because you are born in the Jewish race. These people, these people you despise, they're me. They make up my body. And when you persecute them, you persecute me. You think there might have been a little bit of fear in Paul's heart at this point? You know what I'm saying? Like this guy who's so headstrong, so, so like zealous, so like, man, I am self-righteous, standing in that moment in the face of actual righteousness, realizing that he's been persecuting the very... Uh, powerful one he thought he represented, he's finding himself on the opposite side of God. That's a humbling and scary moment. Um, when he realizes that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. But this is the way it works, you guys. Um, isn't it, in our lives? When you think about it, your own, uh, if you are a follower of Christ, there came a moment where you realized, man, I thought I had this thing figured out. I thought I knew what was what. And God comes in and breaks in with some truth that, that about Jesus that you didn't see, right? That was not clear to you, right? He reveals truth. He turns on the light. 
and it provokes faith in us. Because here's the thing, you guys, faith is a response to truth. That's a fairly simple definition, but it actually has profound implications. Faith is a response to truth. Listen to me, faith is not something you do for God. Faith is not something you generate in your own power. Faith is not something you decide to have or decide not to have. Faith is a response to a revelation of truth. God confronts us with truth, and then He awakens within us a response of faith. Faith isn't something we do for God. It's a response to what God has done for us. And that faith... um, is manifest by simply believing, right? We have two English words, faith and believe. In the Greek, the, the language of the New Testament, there's only one word, uh, pistis and pisteo, one's a noun, one's a verb. We translate those as faith and believe because we have two words in English, but they're the same word. It means essentially the same thing, right? To, to simply see something you didn't previously see and to say it is true. To hear a message of good news and have that message of good news turn on a light that previously was not on. It allows you to see yourself and your world, your future and your past in a completely different way. And to simply say it is true. To believe. Faith is a response to the invasion of truth. And faith always begins with God showing us Jesus. That's where it always begins. For me, that happened when I was 17 years old. Um, I had been raised in, in a quasi-religious home. We did the Jehovah's Witness thing for a while and then went the non-religious path for a while. And, and um, uh, I really had gotten to a point where, honestly, I, I pretty much despised Christianity. I had really bad experiences with the whole Christian subculture thing, uh, bad experiences with church. And uh, I was getting into, um, as I was you know, kind of growing into my head, um, getting into some works. I didn't realize that they were going to become pre-evangelical works in my brain. In other words, they were the pre-gospel, softening, tilling the soil, but reading existentialism. And, 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 and I discovered this weird author named Flannery O'Connor, uh, who was this Southern Gothic Christian writer, just wrote really weird, dark stuff that I loved. Um, and, and that, in the end, led me to a C.S. Lewis, right? I ended up reading Mere Christianity, and I thought it was fascinating, right? Um, and, and all of that led to one night when I'm, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible, right? Never read the Bible before, never opened it up before, but at the advice of a good friend, opened it up, read the book of Hebrews of all things. I didn't understand 80% of what I read. <laughs> I didn't know anything about the Old Testament. I didn't know anything about the context of the story. I'm just reading this thing, and it's talking about sacrifices and priests, and, and it's talking about Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. I don't even know what those mountains were. Never heard of them, Right? Yet the one message that came out crystal clear as I read through the Word that night, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It's the central theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. It was written to the group of Jews to convince them that Jesus was better than their sacrificial system and better than their temple and better than their heritage and their hopes. Jesus was better. And yet what I heard as I sat there as a 17-year-old rebellious, crazy kid was that Jesus was better than everything I was chasing. Jesus was a better hope than I had for myself. Jesus was a better foundation than I was building for myself. Jesus was better. And by the time I got to the end of the book of Hebrews, I was a believer. Now, I don't know exactly when I came to faith. I just know that that I was done running, right? The light was turned on. I saw myself. Like when I was done, it was was like there was no going back. When that light was turned on, I saw myself in a way I'd never seen myself before. I I saw Jesus in a way I'd never seen him, right? And I'm looking at the church, this this institution that I despised for its hypocrisy, for its materialism, for its, its privilege and its power. And it's dawning on me. This is the people of God. And, and they're messed up, just like I'm messed up, Right? So once that light's turned on, you you have to figure out what it means, right? And that's why faith is so different than commitment. You you won't hear me talking about, man, you need to just commit your life to Jesus. You'll never hear me say that, right? Faith isn't commitment. Commitment grows out of faith, right? Faith precedes commitment. 
Commitment's about my action for God. Commitment's about my response to God. Faith is about God's work for me. Faith is about resting in what He's done for me, not me working for Him. And, and that's why when I talk about, man, when you become a follower of Christ, you don't do it by committing your life to Christ. You don't do it by asking Jesus into your heart. You don't do it by doing anything. You do it by believing. You do it by receiving. You do it by hearing the fact that God has solved your greatest problem by, by paying your greatest debt. When Jesus died as your substitute, he took your place in judgment and rose again so that you might stand with him in righteousness, forgiveness, with a new future. See, transformation comes from that light being turned on and a response that simply says, that is true. And because that's true, it, it changes everything. See, commitment will flow from that. Life change will flow from that, right? And so, so it begins, our relationship with God begins in the same way it did with Saul. God showing up, God turning on the light, God provoking us with truth, and us responding in faith. So Saul, um, I love that he's blinded. I mean, it's obviously rich in symbolism. This guy who thought he saw everything clearly is like walking away blind. This guy who was so impressed with his own strength and zeal is now completely dependent, right? They have to lead him by the hand into the city. This is, this is Saul, right? The masculine manly man. This is the guy who is leading the charge. This is the guy who is a natural leader and loves to take the position of point. <laughs> He's having to be led by the hand into the city, going where he doesn't know where he's going, simply at the response of the command of this risen Jesus. Go into the city. Go on. I'll meet you there. Go. So Saul responds, I will go. And they lead him into the city, and he arrives in Damascus. His arrival in Damascus, I'm sure, is very, very different than what he envisioned. You know what I'm saying? Like he thought, man, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to rough this place up. I'm gonna, and, and by the time I'm done, people are going to know who Saul is. And he showed up broken, blind, and helpless. All right, let's keep looking at verses 10 through 19. <clears throat> Starting at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. All right, this is weird, okay? This, this is weird. Why like this? You know what I'm saying? Like, think about this, you guys. God sends Saul to Damascus, helpless, blind, and then says, wait, wait, I've got plans for you. All right, why blind him? Why, why blind him? Why leave him sitting in a room? And then why send Ananias? Right? Why all the weird drama? All right, I have a few guesses. First, Saul's whole world just got turned upside down. You know what I'm saying? Like, like at the appearance of Jesus, everything he thought is now different. Everything he thought he knew, he doesn't know. Everything he was so sure of is now uh, on, on really unstable footing. And he is sitting there, I think, in the dark. You can imagine that, that he's not in this darkness thinking about his blindness. I'm thinking he is just thinking about everything that has been turned upside down. He is sifting through everything he knew. 
He is sifting through everything he thought he knew. And there's a lot there. Saul was an incredibly intelligent man. He had a great intellect. He had sat under the teaching of Gamaliel, who was one of the leading rabbis of the day. He had the best education. He clearly had an, an incredible intellect. And this new truth put everything in a new light. And while he's sitting there in the dark, I I think it just, he had nothing else to do but sit there in that time and run through everything he knew in light of this new knowledge. Like like he's probably just sitting there. He probably had mountains and mountains of Old Testament scripture memorized. And he's just going back through it like, holy cow, how does this fit? What does this mean? If Jesus is the Messiah, if he rose from the dead, how does that play into this? And how does that play into that? You know, the synapses of his brain were going crazy, right? He is just sitting there rethinking and rediscovering everything he thought he knew. And in that time, he is praying. And while he's praying, God gives him a vision. That vision is of a man named Ananias who will come and lay his hands on him. And while he's praying and having a vision of Ananias, God gives Ananias a vision of Paul having a vision of him coming, right? You have a vision inside of a vision. I don't know any other place where something weird like this happens, right? Like he gives Paul a vision of Ananias and he gives Ananias a vision of Paul having a vision of Ananias, right? So like looking at each other across this really weird vision mirror thing, right? So they see each other and, and Ananias is like, what? Why? Right? And we're kind of shaking our heads going, why? <laughs> this is weird. Right? Of all the, way God's, all the ways God could do this, what, what is this? And who's Ananias? Why Ananias? Why not Peter? Why not James, who is recognized at this point as the, one of the leading apostles? Why Ananias, an unknown disciple in a backwater town called Damascus? I think God was playing around a little bit. You have a vision. I'll give you a vision of this guy having a vision, right? (laughs) And while God may be playing uh, and having a little bit of fun, there are real lessons here. See, Saul now knew that Jesus was alive. And he also now knew that the church was his body, right? That, That the people of the church were intimately connected to him, right? These people that Saul despised were Jesus' people. And if they were Jesus' people, that now meant they were his people, right? That, that he was going to need them. See, God was humbling his pride and pushing him into community. And Ananias, Ananias needed to know that, that God's grace had no bounds, Well, of course God's grace met me. I'm only a little sinner. Then there's that that Saul guy? The guy who's persecuting the church, dragging off women and throwing them in prison? That guy? Yeah. See, Ananias needed to know that there were no bounds to God's grace, that God didn't give grace to people that were worthy of grace. That's a paradoxical statement anyways. It just can't be. Nobody deserves grace, which means everybody is qualified to receive it. And, and, and his job was to actually to be God's grace to Saul, a man he despised and feared. So he shows up. He has an interesting message. Hey, Saul, I'm, I'm the guy. You know, I'm here to restore your sight. And, and Jesus told me something else I, I think I'm supposed to pass along to you. Um, he wants you to know you're going to suffer a lot. I'm here to lay my hands on you and to pray for you, and your sight's going to be restored. And and, and Jesus um, said you're going you're gonna to suffer a lot for his name. That's not a real encouraging and fun message to deliver to a guy like Saul. Uh, not the safest message, right? Um, so what's up with that? Why, why did Jesus say that? I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. Is this vindictive? Is this Jesus basically saying, well, you poked me, so I'm going to punch you? right? You rattled my cage, I'm going to rattle your skull, right? You, you, you hurt people I love, man, I'm going to make you suffer. Is that, is that what's going on? Jesus is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little vindictive here. That's not what's happening at all. This wasn't God saying, ha ha, you thought you could make me suffer, watch this. Um, here's the thing, Saul 
He said, he's going to be a man who represents me in front of kings. He's going to be a man who represents me in front of the children of Israel. He's going to be a man who represents me in, in, in all kinds of ways. Saul needs to be a man of great faith, which means Saul needs to be a man who experiences great suffering. Because if Saul's going to be a man of great faith, I'm going to have to grow his faith. And faith is something that grows when it's tested and tried right? Like an athlete who has to push his muscles to the point of exhaustion for those muscles to rebuild and become stronger. God pushes Saul's faith to the point of exhaustion that it might rebuild. Suffering is critical to God's plan to strengthen our faith. There's a quote in your bulletin from Charles Spurgeon. Um, I'm going to go ahead and throw it up on the screen just so you can take a look at it. Charles Spurgeon said this, tried faith brings experience. You could not have believed your own weakness had you not been compelled to pass through the rivers. And you would have never known God's strength had you not been supported amid the water floods. All right, just picture the image here. What he's talking about is somebody having to cross a swollen river and, and, and being exhausted to the point of drowning. Like, like your muscles can't take you farther. You are insufficient for the task at hand. You are in mortal peril. What he's saying is you would have never known the limit of your strength had you not been pushed to the limit of your strength. And having been pushed to the limit of your strength to the point where you are helpless, you now discover that God's there with you in a way you didn't know previously. You wouldn't have known it because you always have a certain amount of confidence in your own strength. You always have a certain level of, of self-confidence and, and self-focus and self-sufficiency. And God will push you to the limit of your strength so that once you've passed it, you'll discover His. And then he goes on and says this, Faith increases in solidity, assurance, and intensity the more it is exercised with tribulation. Faith is precious, and so its trial is precious too. I love that. Faith is precious, so its trial is precious too. When, when God said to Saul, man, you're gonna, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my namesake, that suffering wasn't vindictive. Now, that suffering wasn't God getting back at Saul. That suffering was an expression of love to Saul. That was God saying to Saul, I'm going to give you great tasks that are going to require great faith. And because you need great faith, you're going to have to experience great suffering. It works that way with us, too. You guys ever watch The Biggest Loser? The show that, that you know, kind of took off, and, and um, they, they get folks who are, are uh, morbidly obese. That's the technical term for it. They are very overweight. They, they are um, really at their wit's end, right? And then they pair them up with a professional trainer, and, and they equip them with, with the diet and all the exercise tools and all the things they need, right? But that professional trainer, it's their job to push them in ways they've never been pushed. It's that professional trainer's job to, to get them to the point where they're puking on the side of the road. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they are just bent over, suffering, puking on the side of the road, looking up their trainer saying, I can't do anymore. And their training, trainer saying, yes, yes, you can. Get up. Right? I mean, they become the embodiment of suffering. Uh, one of the things that's, that's entertaining about that show is in the middle of it, when, when these guys are so exhausted, you can just see the hatred on their face for their trainer. You know what I'm saying? They're like, you are the devil. You are the embodiment of all that is evil in the world, right? Because they just push them and push them and push them, and they don't let up. Seems cold-hearted, right? Uh, there's not a single trainer on there that, that is coddling and friendly and, oh, I'm so sorry you're suffering right now. We'll just let off for a little while. It, it doesn't happen right? These guys are cracking the whip. They're driving the ship. They're like, this is the way we got to go. Get up, man. When you get to the end of the show, not a single contestant looks over at their trainer and says, I hate you. Or they'll say it with a smile on their face and they'll say, I hate you, but I love you. Why? Because all that suffering Right In the moment of suffering, the suffering seems like everything. In the moment of suffering, the suffering seems like everything. When you're on the side of the road puking, all you're thinking about is your pain and your exhaustion and, and your nausea 
and you're like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't keep going. I can't. But what it produces is worth more than all the suffering combined. There's not a single contestant when they get to the end of that run. I don't think they wouldn't go back and do it again. As crazy as it is. And in fact, if they went back and did it again, they would probably do it better. They would probably work harder. They would probably push further. You know why? Because they gained strength by having gone through the suffering. And having gained that strength, that then equips them to go through further suffering with greater endurance. The pain in your life, that suffering, that area in your life where you're on the side of the road puking, is God's tool to grow your faith. And faith, faith is the key to freedom and joy and power. We have all the promises of God in front of us, follower of Christ. All the joy and the freedom and the power of the resurrection in front of us. And yet we are tasting only a small bit. You know why? Because we have small faith. And God is not content with our experience of his blessing. And God is not content with our faith mixed with our doubt. And he will bring suffering into our life because he will grow our faith. You may be on the side of the road saying, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. If you pause and if you listen carefully, you'll hear Jesus saying to you the same thing he said to his disciples. I'm with you. I have not left you. I have not forsaken you. I'm with you. And I know what it is to suffer because I've suffered more than you can imagine. I know what it is to feel pain. I'm not taking you any place I haven't gone, and I'm not taking you any place that isn't in the end good. In the moment, the suffering is everything. But as you pass through and you see what it produces, you come to value and even treasure God's hand in your life, even when it brings pain. Because it's through that pain that God brings blessing. So Saul becomes an unlikely disciple. Take a look at verses 20 through 25. Saul now has received his sight. He's been prayed over by Ananias. He's ready to join the disciples, right? And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. All right, two critical movements taking place here. Saul moving into the company of disciples as a disciple, right? Having been introduced into the company of disciples through Ananias, he now moves into the company of the disciples as a disciple. He joins them as one of them. And then Saul moving out as a disciple to make more disciples, Right? So Paul moves into the community of disciples and he moves out on mission to see new disciples made. Now we know from other places that Saul actually ended up spending three years in Damascus. This is summarized in Luke uh, in Acts. But, um, but he spends about three years with the disciples. And uh, according to Luke, he immediately started going to the synagogue in Damascus to talk about Jesus. He couldn't keep it in, Right? He just got his sight restored. He's, his brain is just going crazy with this new information and the new ways interpreting like the Old Testament and the light that it's bringing to all these passages, right? According to verse 22, he's, he's in there and, and he's this intellectual talking, debating kind of a guy. And so he's engaging them. 
and it says he confounds them, right? He's just reasoning with them and arguing with them, wrestling with ideas, and they don't know how to wrestle back, right? He is just opening up their scriptures and showing them from their scriptures how Jesus is the Christ, and they're like, we don't know what to do with this, right? He confounds them, and in being confounded, they get ticked, right? Saul's massive intellect was going crazy as he related and retraced and, and relearned everything in light of the, the resurrection, compelled to share it. He was challenged by what he was thinking and, and was challenging others to see it too. He was, he was Saul being Saul, which I think at this point means he was being bold. He was being loud. He was being challenging. And he was making enemies, <laughs> right? So much so that the Jewish leadership plotted to kill him right? They're like, this is the guy that was supposed to come and, and take care of all these guys. Now we got the problem of him. And, and these guys hadn't been motivated to do anything previously. They were just annoyed by the presence of the church. Now they're actually motivated to kill. Tells you what a mess he was making, right? He came to persecute. And in the end, he's the one that had to be let down out of the city wall in a basket. Again, I don't think that's exactly how Paul envisioned his trip to Damascus. Um, but he couldn't go back, you guys. He couldn't go back. Once he saw, once the light had been turned on, once he was confronted with these truths, he couldn't go back. It changed everything. What used to give him fame now gives him pain, right? His pride, his glory, his zeal, his, 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 all of it. He had to relearn not just how to understand the scriptures. He had to relearn how to understand people. I think that's what's critical about these three years with the disciples in Damascus. He had to learn how to relate to people in grace. That doesn't just come, right? So, so he suddenly believes in Jesus, but he's still the, 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 the hard-driving, naturally inclined to be rude kind of a guy. I mean, just this, this, this he, he loves to be the nail that pierces the wood, he, you know, but he has to learn how to be a man of grace. He has to learn how to be the one who um, relates to others in gentleness. And, and through that, we see him in the end having to be lowered. His, his mission in Damascus wasn't exactly a great success. Uh, we don't see an exploding presence of disciples. The reverse, we see people rising up against him and him having to be lowered out of a window in a basket. All right, verses 26 through 31, we see him now moving from there, right? And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him into, to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, um, and they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So with the conversion of Saul, we see this, this pocket of peace for the church. They, they get this moment of respite from suffering, this respite from, from persecution. All right, so what about this trip to, to Jerusalem? Uh, a few interesting things, right? Saul gives us a glimpse, in, uh, Luke gives us a glimpse into Saul's first visit to Jerusalem. Uh, about three years after he became a believer. Um, and we know from Galatians that when he was there, he wasn't warmly received, and he didn't really seek to be warmly received. He ended up having a meeting with James, and he ended up spending about 15 days with Peter. But he didn't meet with all the apostles. He, he didn't suddenly be given the, the, the keys to the kingdom. They didn't trust him. They didn't like him, right? But one critical thing did happen on this visit. This guy named Barnabas took a real interest in him. We were introduced to Barnabas earlier in the book of Acts. His name was Joseph, and the apostles started calling him Barnabas, which is a name that means son of encouragement, because Barnabas was this guy that just was the embodiment of grace, the embodiment of encouragement. He sold a, a, a attractive land that was worth a ton of money and gave that money to, to all the new converts in Jerusalem so they could be fed and clothed. And he was just a guy who laid down his life for others. And when, when, Paul show, when Saul showed up, Barnabas took him under his wing. Barnabas is the one that gets him an introduction to the apostles. And we see farther in the book of Acts that, that Barnabas and Saul actually become very close. 
And I would say during this period of time, Barnabas probably becomes Saul's mentor, right? Not so much teaching him the scriptures. Saul was already thoroughly trained in scriptures, but teaching him the ways of grace. What better man to introduce Saul to the beauty of grace than the son of encouragement? What better mentor for this hard-driving, hard man than this strong, gentle, meek man? right? Not weak, meek. A guy who is acquainted with the beauty of grace and acquainted with the strength of, of humility. And so, so, so he, um, he vouches for him. He gets him introduction. And, uh, and while he's there, Saul can't help himself. He just gravitates to the synagogue. He has to keep debating and arguing. Uh, he gets people very, very angry at him. Once again, they plot to kill him, which tells you again how noisy and how persuasive he was being. They didn't know how to silence his words or deal with his arguments. <laughs> they were going to kill his voice. And when they heard about it, they're like, all right, we've got to get this guy out of here for a while. So they send him off to, to, to Tarsus. He's going to spend eight years in Tarsus. Eight years. What is he doing for eight years? We don't know. He's sitting, right? They're like, dude, go cool your heels for a while. Go to Tarsus, let Barnabas meet with you, and grow. Grow in your faith. So he gets sidelined for eight more years. All right, so think about this, you guys. He's so smart. He had been to the best schools. He was a natural leader. He gravitated toward leadership, and people just followed him. Right? I don't know if you noticed it, but when he was lowered uh, out of Damascus, it said specifically his disciples lowered him. Right? So he became a leader in Damascus. It was just his personality. It was just his presence. You're going to take a guy like that and sideline him? A natural leader, a gifted, highly intelligent guy, and you're going to stick him in the backwater? They did because he needed to go back to school. But the school he needed to go to was the school of humility and the school of community and the school of grace. He needed to develop a character that would make his intellect safe. See, God gives us our faith and he grows our faith through suffering and he is in no rush to see us lead. We have a culture that idolizes leadership. We really do. We love strong leaders. We love smart people. We love well-spoken people. We love people who have a, a presence, that intangible presence that others want to follow. So we, we, we almost gravitate. I mean, we almost throw them up onto the platform, throw them into positions of leadership. We, we heap our adoration onto them, and, and honestly, often we want to be them. But leadership not only requires skill, it requires character. And character can only be developed over time. See, humility is the bedrock for spiritual leadership. Saul was the golden child. Um, he had spent his first 11 years, and, and then he spent his first 11 years in obscurity. He had the best education. He was an ox when it came to work. He was a lion when it came to courage. And yet he was sidelined. How do you do when your best gifts aren't recognized as being all that great? How do you do when what you're really good at, or at least what you think you're really good at, is seen as not being all that good? How do you do with being sidelined? You know, when, when, when what makes you unique and valuable, what should be bringing you strength and attention is overlooked, what goes on in your heart? Maybe this is the season of God saying, I'm pouring you a new foundation. I'm digging into all that pride. I am uprooting all of those lies that you want to believe, those lies that say, this is why I'm important. This is what makes me valuable. This is what makes me significant. He's uprooting all of that. He's exposing all of that. He's digging it all out and dredging it all out so that he can pour a new bedrock foundation of humility, which is a foundation of true strength. You guys, listen to me. Don't despise the seasons of obscurity. Every good leader has spent a season in obscurity. Every great leader has spent time making others look great. Don't despise your season of being passed over. 
God's grace, as he humbles you, is beautiful. Because he's freeing you into true strength. The only difference, you guys, the only difference between humiliation and joy is pride. It's the only difference between humiliation and joy. See, when we see that it's all grace, that it's all grace, we can be humbled without being humiliated. We can be passed over without being devalued. We can be ignored without feeling like we're made less. Humility is strength. See, Paul needed time in obscurity, time where he would just step away from his zealousness, and he had to learn to just be, to learn that his value wasn't in his performance for God, but in resting in God's performance for him. He had to come to see that his glory was Christ, not his performance for Christ. His glory was God's love, not people hearing about God's love through him. He had to learn not to define his worth by his labor, but instead to learn to labor from the worth that he had intrinsically in Christ. All right, we're going to wrap that up there. I'm going to put some questions on the screen, ask you to pray and and let God um, speak to your heart, encourage you, strengthen you, challenge you, whatever needs to happen. Um, If you're a guest with us, the worship response cards are in your bulletin. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to, to, to know how you got here. And, and if we can pray for you, let us know. We'd love to pray with you and for you. If you have any prayer requests, um, let us know. And uh, let me pray for us. We'll go on time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father God, we thank you that you are um, a God who is determined to bless. That you had set Saul apart, not because of his intelligence, you gave him that, not because of his strength, you gave him that, not because he was a great persecutor of the church, but in spite of that, you looked at him and said, I will love you, not because you're lovable, but because in my love, I will make you lovable. And I love you, Lord, and I thank you that because when we see that in Saul, that's also true for us. You love us in spite of our sin. And you call us to see the beauty of your risen son and to join the community of believers as a fellow disciple, learning the paths of grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.